Our first scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah, chapter 60, verses 1 through 6. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephath. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. I want to say thank you to Alden and for Alan Bell to uh, be up here with me this morning. Uh, Wade had planned to be out this week and is, and is uh, vacationing with family, but uh, we've had some illness among the staff, so that's why a lot of the names on the back page this morning don't match up to who you see up here this morning. But, uh, and if Alan wasn't here, we wouldn't be having communion this morning, so just grateful to him for stepping in late minute here. Our gospel reading this week is Matthew's story of the Magi following a star, seeking out a newborn king, Jesus. Last week in our gospel passage from Luke, Jesus was 12 and in the temple. And this week he's back to being, if not a baby, at least a much younger child. Needless to say, the birth stories in Luke and Matthew are very different. When we tell the Christmas story, we usually mash up the Luke and the Matthew stories together, and the shepherds and the wise men all end up at the stable together. But in Matthew, there's actually no mention of a stable. There's a house. And for whatever reason, Mary and Joseph are apparently living in Bethlehem. For how long, we don't know. If we could only listen to the Matthew story without the Luke in our heads, we might be able to grasp the significance of the message that Matthew is trying to share with his listeners. For example, Luke's birth narrative ties into his emphasis on the great reversal. For Luke, God works with the unexpected, especially the disenfranchised. In Luke's gospel, the first is last, and the last is first. Matthew, however, has a different perspective. His birth story is all about politics. The spotlight swings onto the international scene and portrays Jesus as a rival king who threatens the powers that be. When the Magi come and worship Jesus, they grant him political legitimacy. And we assume there were three kings because there were three expensive gifts. But the truth is, we don't know how many there were or who they were for that matter. So, with fresh ears, let us look at this passage from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and we've come to honor him. 
When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. He gathered all the chief priests and the legal experts, and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. And they said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written, You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you least among the rulers of Judah, because from you will come one who governs and who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the time when the star had first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search carefully for the child. When you have found him, report to me so that I may too go and honor him. When they heard the king, they went. And look, the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother. And falling to their knees, they honored him. Then they opened their treasure chests and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And because they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. About a week ago, I was leaving the house to head to work here at church for the morning, and I locked my back door like I always do, and then I put my keys in my pocket and walked over to the car to open the door, and I put my hand on the door handle, and nothing happened. It didn't open. And I took my hand off, and then I put it back on again, and there was no click, no nothing. And I reached in my pocket to make sure that my keys were there. And I looked at them. They were there. And I put my hand back on the the handle and pulled on it. And nothing happened. And I was like, oh. So I pulled my keys out of my pocket again. And I pushed the button. And I heard the click I was hoping to click here. And I got into my car. And I don't have to tell you how exhausted I was by that point. (laughs) Too much drama that early in the morning. Now, until 60 years ago, I didn't have a car that that was possible. I physically had to put a key, you know, into an ignition and turn it to start it. But now I'm spoiled, right? We call that first world problems. King Herod was a man with first world problems. He didn't deal with the same problems that everybody else dealt with. And his level for uncomfort, I'm sure, was a lot different than most of the people in his world. King Herod was busy trying to maintain a grip on the power that he had achieved over his lifetime. His right to rule, in fact, was not given to him by birth because his father had been a king and therefore he too would be a king. Now, he apparently had made some smart deals in his life that had led him to this point and he was willing to do anything and everything that he could to hang on to it. I like to imagine him as Jafar from the movie Aladdin with shifty, untrusting eyes and a long, thin beard that he twists with his fingers as he thinks. In real life, Herod was a very complex man. He was famous in the ancient world. He oversaw massive building projects, absolutely transforming the infrastructure of the region. The projects, of course, cemented his extraordinary fame. However, massive building projects accrue massive costs. 
Herod steeply increased taxes on the working population, the majority of whom we can assume were just barely getting by. That being said, Herod was also famous in another way. He was obscenely obsessed with power and was hyper-paranoid. Moreover, when trying to protect himself, he was absolutely brutal. He constantly stayed on guard against threats to his power. And his track record shows the extent of his paranoia. In total, he killed 300 public officials, two of his own sons, and one of his wives, all on the suspicion that they were plotting conspiracies against his throne. If we were making this into a Christmas movie like Wade alluded to last week, this is definitely not a Hallmark movie. It's a political action thriller with Jesus and Mary hidden away in Bethlehem in some kind of safe house. We don't even know where Joseph is right now. And there's a heart-pounding race going on to see who gets to Jesus first. Whatever you want to say about Herod, you have to acknowledge he saw some truth. And the truth was that his power was under threat. There's only room for one king, And if the news he was hearing was true, then the status quo was about to be overturned. And he was frightened, Matthew tells us, when the the Magi arrived and started asking questions. And it only got worse as his knowledge grew. If you continue reading after the end of today's passage, then you get a sense of just how threatened Herod was by this news. How threatened he was by the light that was seen beyond the borders of his power. And it's sobering to consider how an empire might react to a challenge to its grip on the people. How far would you go to oppose God? Would you kill an innocent child just to make sure you remained in control? And then there's the Magi. Astrologers, really. Some would even call them sorcerers. They were from way, way, way out of town. Did did you ever wonder what their lives must have been like? Were they up all night and slept all day in their quest to read the skies? What did that look like? Did one of them notice a star late one night that he had never seen before and go running to alert the others? A star, a star dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite. That got much more of a laugh at the 8.30 service. (laughs) I was quoting Bing Crosby, if you didn't get the the reference. At that time in the ancient world, many different peoples believed that a star appeared in the night sky at one's birth. Everyone had their own star, and the brighter that it was, the more important that the the person was. Since the Magi saw such a bright star, they recognized that a new king had been born. The importance of this event made it worth it for them to make the long trek to find this new king. But the Magi didn't just study the stars and admire what they found. They acted on it. They followed it. In our gospel reading, the Magi are compared and contrasted with the chief priests and the scribes that King Herod calls together. The Magi are traveling and seeking something that they know nothing about. The scribes and the priests have the knowledge. They know the Jewish prophecy, but they aren't seeking. They don't move from their comfortable seats of wisdom and leadership 
even when, when presented with the news that fits the knowledge that they claim to prize. See, knowing and seeking aren't necessarily the same thing. How far would you go to see God? Would you leave your home and follow an ambiguous star? Would you enter the seat of a foreign power and engage with a paranoid ruler and his room full of yes-men? There's one really important quality of the Magi that we haven't talked about yet, and that's their motive. Their intention for seeking out the child in the first place. See, verse 2 says, we've seen his star in the east and we've come to honor him. Some translations say to pay him homage and others, we've come to worship him. The Magi didn't travel from wherever they were just to give this newborn child some gifts. No, theirs was a journey to worship. It's significant in the Matthew story that the ones who have come to worship are the ones who would have been excluded from worship of God in the Jewish temple. They wouldn't have been allowed in. But here in this house with just Jesus and Mary, there were no restrictions, no limited access. Let's try to imagine what that scene of the Magi and Mary and Jesus look like, free from our Christmas pageant versions of the scene that are stuck in our heads. Let's say it's a warm day in Bethlehem. The Magi arrived in Bethlehem in the middle of the night as they followed the star, and they've scouted out the house in the dark where they think the new king is. But of course, you wouldn't come calling then in the middle of the night. That would be rude. So they waited until a reasonable hour after the sun is up and they've come knocking. And let's say then in our version there are four magi, one carrying myrrh, one frankincense, and two carrying gold because it's heavy and, well, it's expensive too, and it makes sense that they would say, hey, this is from both of us. <laughs> and while we're at it, let's say there's a couple of servants that have been helping them on their journey, and let's add in an interpreter, a translator, because, and I'm just guessing here, being from such a distant land, the Magi didn't speak Aramaic, the same language that Mary and Joseph spoke. So sometime after breakfast... Mary hears a knock at the front door, and she gets up to see who it is, only to find seven strange-looking, exhausted men standing in her entryway. And Mary says what any of us would say, come on in. It's hard to imagine ourselves doing that, doesn't it? But Mary, maybe she was accustomed to such things by now. And so she invites them in, and they all follow her into the main room. And Mary says, I was just about to make myself some tea. Would you like some? Because you wouldn't invite a bunch of guests into your house and not offer some kind of refreshment. And once everyone has settled in and gotten to know each other, Mary goes back into the room where Jesus is taking his nap and brings him out. And what follows is a tender scene of grown men ooing and aahing and smiling at the little boy. And having been distracted by the simplicity and normalcy of the moment, one of the Magi finally remembers why they traveled all this way. And he motions to the others, and they all get down on their knees, and they put their faces to the carpet, and they worshiped the child.
For how long? We don't know. But we do know what happened next. They gave gifts. As a response to the one they worshipped, as a way of extending their worship, making it tangible, they gave something of their hands and their hearts. The giving of gifts is a precious thing, but it comes as a way of sealing what they have already poured out. The, the gift is an act of gratitude, a celebration of a relationship, a sign of the condition of the heart. A gift always points beyond itself to the person giving and the person receiving. And the Magi remind us in this transformational moment that we are something of both. Receivers who want to give. We give honor to God, and in doing so, we receive a blessing, and then we respond with our gifts. If you think about it, the Magi are the heroes in this Christmas action movie. They're the ones responding to God's leading wherever it takes them. How far would we go? Where in our lives do we even have the opportunity to mount up on camels and follow a star that seems a little brighter than the others just to see what or who might be there? Or maybe that's not the point at all. Maybe the message for us is about, knocking, about answering a knock at the door like Mary did and deciding to welcome in some strangers so that they too may honor him. On the night before Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve Eve, if you will, I was here in the choir loft with some others gathered uh, rehearsing some of the music for the Christmas Eve service and the Sunday following. And um, I could see some commotion out, out there at the door, and I saw a van pull up, and then someone got up and knocked on the door. But they didn't stay there very long. They kind of stepped back, and I just assumed, as we all would this time of year, that it was an Amazon Prime van, you know, dropping off some package at some untold hour of the night. And the van pulled away, but then a couple of minutes later, it pulled back up again. And this time, the person knocking at the door stayed there. So I made the journey down the center aisle to the door. And when I could get close enough, I could see that it wasn't an Amazon van at all. It was one of those Mata Plus buses that, that the people who have mobility issues call so that they can get a ride somewhere. And I opened the door, and a woman about this tall swung open the door as I was opening it and said, um, I need to get down to the other end of the church. And I said, what are, you, what are you looking for? And she's like, the unity group. The unity group is what we call the AA ministry here at the church. And I said, well, are you even sure it's meeting tonight? She's like, oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm, I'm part of the leadership group. And this was about an hour before they were supposed to meet. And she said, I just got off work downtown. I had to be early because this is the only time I could get a ride. And the whole time we're having this conversation, the Mata Plus driver is standing behind her going, I've got to go. And, and so I just want to make sure she wasn't being abandoned. And then finally I said, okay, well, I can walk you down through the building. And the, must, the matter driver was going, just call me if you need me. And I'm like, I don't know how, your number. You know. <laughs> and so she grabs my hand and she's wearing latex gloves. And we start the journey down to the far end of the building and down the stairs at a, at a walking speed of about 25% of my usual walking speed. <laughs> And I'm thinking, 
this is going to take me 10, 15 minutes to get her down there. And then she said something that I wasn't expecting. She said, we are so excited for that beautiful new room that you all are building for us. I took a peek at it the other day, and it is really nice. She's talking about the community room, the room that we're specifically building for the groups from outside our church that can come and meet and can easily find so that they don't have to walk through our entire building to get where they need to go. And as we were walking, I looked down and she was wearing a windbreaker that said Sheriff's Department. And I said, where do you work? Kind of already knowing the answer. And she said, I work at 201 Poplar. I'm in charge of the jobs program. We're famous. We can find anybody a job. I've even been to Washington, D.C. to tell people about what we do. If you know somebody who needs a job, you just let them know. They don't have to be a prisoner for me to help them. And we got about to the church office, and she said, I need to take a break. Can I sit down here? And I was like, sure. And I was thinking, oh, man, I wish this elevator was working. And we, st we stood there, and we chatted for a while. And the break wasn't very long, and then she stood up. And I walked her over to the stairs, and she's like, if you'll just go first, I'll be able to hold on to both rails, and I'll make it down the stairs. And so we did, and we got down there. And you know, as I was locking up the church that night, Two young men about in their early 20s pulled up next to my car and they, like, they said to me, is this where the meeting is? And I said, yes it is and I happen to know that somebody's already here waiting for you to arrive. See, ministry and mission is happening here at Emmanuel at times that we don't even think of. And can't we see that this story which seems so ancient really is not so ancient at all, but plays out among us every single day. Knowing and seeking are not necessarily the same thing. Usually in a gospel reading, Jesus, the adult Jesus, is speaking to someone, a follower, a Pharisee, the crowds. But in today's story, Jesus is passive. He's just there, a baby, saying nothing, but creating Quite a commotion nonetheless. But the message of Jesus is consistent throughout the Gospels. The way of Jesus is one of truth, simplicity, and welcoming strangers. So as we start this new year together, may that be our task. Each day and every single moment that comes with it, may we seek opportunities to worship God, opportunities to give of ourselves and opportunities to welcome others. How far would you go? Let's pray. Lord God, guide us in our lives. May others see your love shine through us. May our words and actions constantly point to you. May we put you first in everything and serve you always. We ask you to be with us and give us a year where we seek and know and feel and are guided by your presence. And whatever the year holds, may we never lose sight of you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.